Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and producer of our dope theme music. I was home in California for Thanksgiving week, and among my political friends, all the talk was about the upcoming race for mayor in L.A. to succeed Eric Garcetti, the sitting mayor, twice-elected incumbent, both term-limited, out of his job, and also being sent to India by Joe Biden to be America's ambassador there, assuming he gets approved by the Senate. The L.A. mayor's race is going to be a crazy, hot, and heavy one. The field is wildly crowded already. The election is a year away. The Democratic primary is next June. And there's already like 15 announced candidates, and there could be more to come. But also... As it turns out, there is a clearer frontrunner in this giant field, a woman who also happens to be a national figure in our politics, a Democratic House member who is smack in the middle of the heated debates and the looming deadlines that are facing Congress at this very moment, and therefore the perfect guest for our show this week. The person I'm talking about is the one and only Karen Bass. I'm Karen Bass, and the state of our union is tense. It's tense because our democracy is fragile and we have such fundamental questions ahead of us, like whether or not the next election, people will freely be allowed to vote. Karen Bass is a born and bred daughter of the City of Angels with a long and deep history in activism, community organizing and politics in both the city and the state the history that saw her work as a physician's assistant in an urban hospital emergency room, to go on to found a landmark Los Angeles group called the Community Coalition in response to the crack and gang epidemics in that city in the 1980s, a history that put her at the corner of Florence and Normandy when the 1992 L.A. riots exploded in the wake of the Rodney King beating, made her a state assemblywoman for six years, including a stint as the speaker of the California State Assembly, which rendered her the first ever African-American woman in the history of the country to serve as the speaker of a state legislative body. Went on from there to win election to the House of Representatives in 2010, where she has been ever since. And in that time, allowed her to serve a stint as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and eventually get so much status and so much prominence and so much importance that When 2020 rolled around, Joe Biden gave her a serious look when he was choosing his running mate in the presidential race that year. Now she is about to leave Congress and go and run for the mayor of her hometown. And she is, as I said before, the clear front runner. You can tell that just by looking at the list, as long as your arm of the endorsement she's already racked up just in the couple months since she announced that she was going to make that race. Former U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer behind Karen Bass, former L.A. Mayor Antonio Villagrosa behind Karen Bass, prominent California congresspeople like Katie Porter and Adam Schiff behind Karen Bass. Yeah, she's the front runner. And, you know, as a fellow born and bred Angelino, I was, of course, interested in why Karen Bass is leaving her perch in Congress for the decidedly less glamorous and undoubtedly harder job of L.A. Mayor. What exactly is motivating Karen Bass at the age of 68 to take on what would almost certainly be her final political public service mission, 
trying to fix a city with massive problems, social problems and economic problems, infrastructure problems, problems galore. A city that a lot of people, much as I love it, much as she loves it, a city that a lot of people consider, not unreasonably, to be ungovernable. Why would anybody want to do that? Also, I was interested in what Karen Bass thinks about the current state of her current home in our nation's capital, which may be even more fucked up than Los Angeles. And of course, as I always am, I was interested in hearing what Karen Bass had to say about the fragile, imperiled, deeply disturbing state of our democracy, not just the state of one city, not just the state of Washington, but the whole enchilada and the prospect that Donald Trump might just decide to run for president again in 2024 and, you know, <laughs> the even worse possibility that he could win. And I was really mostly interested to know whether Karen Bass, if that eventuality were to occur, whether she might consider a modest proposal of, you know, taking the city of Los Angeles and renaming it the Democratic Republic of Los Angeles and declaring it a sovereign state place of refuge, a place of solace, a place where I could go and hide in that circumstance. And I'm not sure I'd be alone because a lot of us are going to need somewhere to go in that eventuality, a point where the floods and fires of today begin to look tepid and timid and trivial by comparison. And we all find ourselves contending with the ultimate reality of an America consumed in hell and high water. Today, I'm back to announce our action plan to battle COVID-19 this winter. And it doesn't include shutdowns or lockdowns, but widespread vaccinations and boosters and testing and a lot more. We're going to fight this variance with science and speed, not chaos and confusion. We move forward in the face of COVID-19 and the Delta variant. And we'll move forward in the face of Omicron variant as well. And we'll do it by keeping the faith and doing it together as the United States of America. So that was Joe Biden last week talking about his action plan for dealing with COVID-19 this winter, and in particular dealing with the possible threat of this Omicron variant that we're all a little bit worried about or more than a little bit worried about. And here to talk about that and much more with us today on Hell and High Water is Representative Karen Bass, Congresswoman from the 37th District of California. That would be Los Angeles. But maybe not for much longer. Karen Bass, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fine, and it's really a pleasure to be on. How much are you freaking out about Omicron? A lot of the country's freaking out. We got cases now. We knew it was going to come to the United States here in, in New York, where I am. We now have cases. There's cases in California, where you're from. There's cases now. It's kind of, you know, we know it's going to get here. How worried are you? Well, I'm not that worried about Los Angeles and California, mainly because I think we've had excellent leadership in terms of being very aggressive and focusing on the science. But, you know, I'm actually really concerned about the world. I mean, we have to get the world vaccinated. Otherwise, right. we're going to continually have different variants. And, of course, we have to get more people vaccinated here. I think the history will judge when you look back on 2021 that that the Biden administration's done a professional, competent and in some ways excellent job in rolling out vaccines. This question of whether we've done enough as a country for the world is one that a lot of people in the world ask all the time. Like there's a lot of vaccine doses here that are not being used. And people say we're going to have to vaccinate Africa. We're going to have to vaccinate a lot of the world because of those variant questions. So do you think the U.S. has done enough to lead on that front? 
Well, I don't know if we've done enough, and especially because the Biden administration inherited complete chaos. If they had come in and things had been handled well last year, I think we would have been much stronger on the international front. But I sure would like to see the president convene all the world leaders to say we have got to come together. Now, I know that we have distributed millions of doses, but I really think it's an effort of the entire world, not just the United States. Has to be, for sure. He's got a, you know, a new plan to confront both winter COVID in general and this new variant. And, you know, more testing, subsidies for testing through people's health insurance, some international travel restrictions, more vaccination sites. To me, none of these are controversial things, right? These are not wildly controversial. And yet your friends on the Republican side of the aisle are freaking out. I mean, utterly freaking out, yes. acting like, you know, you've got people accusing Tony Fauci of being a Nazi. Right. On national television, you know, Tom Cotton says he's a Democratic operative. Laura Logan on Fox News compared him to Joseph Mengele. What do you think that's about? I mean, look, you could say Tony Fauci hasn't always been right about everything because the science has changed and new data has come in and all that stuff. But Joseph Mengele, what I mean, I just don't don't understand where that even arises from. Is that pure politics in your view or is there really some craziness on the Republican side? Oh, I definitely think it's both. (laughs) There is is no question that it's both, especially because I work with some of the crazy. But, you know, the idea that people would say that, you know, comparing Fauci to Nazis, but also, you know what happened in the Senate, where you had a handful of senators literally talking about shutting the government down so that science would not be imposed. There wouldn't be vaccine mandates. We would defund actually the vaccines. That is crazy. That's not just politics. I'll tell you what, I live in New York City where we have effectively a vaccine mandate pretty much Mm -hmm. to do anything here. I mean, I've never had a problem with the mandate to begin with because we mandate a lot of vaccines in America. But I guess my question about this is given the depth of the culture war on this, and I think that's part of what's going on with Republicans. Are we ever going to get America vaccinated to the degree that we need to, because we know that a lot of what's about to unfold and what has unfolded is we now have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And given the depth of the culture war, whatever explains it, are we ever going to get there, do you think? Well, you know what could happen is we could have more and more mandates just to get people used to it. For example, there could be mandates on air travel. There could be mandates on subway travel. You know, so I was in New York and I liked the fact that when I went in a restaurant, I had to show my vaccination card. And I said, well, L.A. should do this. And of course, when I got home, L.A. started the vaccine mandate, you know, showing the cards a week or so later. So you're seeing it. And I think if they continue to roll it out like that and the mandates essentially just keep spreading, that might be what causes people to finally normalize it. I mean, you know, we've always had vaccines. You have to have vaccines to leave the country to travel. And you carry a vaccine passport. It's your yellow card. Sure. And, you know, as kids, we all got shot with six or seven different mandatory vaccines and no one ever complained about our measles shots and our smallpox shots and all that stuff. The other thing I like about that story is that you're not even mayor of L.A. yet and they're only listening to you. It's like you say, (laughs) we should have a a restaurant thing. L.A. just marches, steps right up and does it. That's fantastic. That's a great kind of power to have without even holding the office. Apparently, you're very influential. Here's my other question. You just talked about the Capitol Hill situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been heading into this month of December with a lot of trepidation, given that, you know, 
I would say we would agree probably that things have not been moving in the most smooth, efficient or rapid way on Capitol Hill. Not that they ever do. Right. But between the government shutdown that was looming, now averted, and the debt ceiling negotiations and build back better. That's a very crowded holiday month. We got, like I said, the the shutdown's not happening now. Great. Congratulations for keeping the government open, you, you folks on Capitol <laughs> Thank Hill. Thank you. Do you have a sense of where things are going on the debt ceiling? Is I mean, because that's the catastrophe, right? If we don't right. get that done, are you feeling confident and comfortable about that? And then we'll talk about Build Back Better in a second. You know, I, I am. I am. And it's too bad that the culture of the Capitol is we have to get right to the brink, right yeah. to the cliff. And then all of a sudden magic happens. I hope that we don't have to get to the cliff with the debt ceiling. And I certainly hope that we can get BBB done and maybe they will be collapsed into one. Who knows? We'll see. Later, I wanted to ask you, why would you want to leave Capitol Hill and become mayor of Los Angeles? But it's kind of obvious, right? Who would want to stay on Capitol Hill? I can't believe you've lasted there as long as you've been there. Just speak to that. I mean, just unpack those two things a little bit. Number one, it does feel like Republicans who had been much McConnell in particular, who had been much more hardcore about the debt ceiling and seemed like they were more willing to push us over the cliff a couple months ago now seem to be a little bit more like the way it normally is, ready to right. have get something done. That's right. It's your party, though, that has had the problem with Build Back Better. And, and I mean some specific members of your party. Mm-hmm. And there's been frustration mm-hmm. among liberal members of the House with people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Do you share that frustration? And when you said you're hopeful, are you hopeful based on a sense that you can see how this deal is going to come together or because you're just crossing your fingers and praying for the best? (laughs) (laughs) No, mainly from conversations that I've heard on the Hill where people have been directly talking to cinema and mansion. But it is frustrating the fact that over in the Senate, a couple of people can just stop anything and everything. And, you know, within our caucus uh, in the House, it's been both sides. It's been progressives and it's been moderates. And so we did come together, as you well know. And so I'm certainly hoping that they will get it done. I am a little nervous about it, though, because they might get it done. But the question is, what will they get done? (laughs) What will it be? I don't want to be the skunk of the garden party, but just because you mentioned it. Yes, it's true. In a majority party, there will be ideological factions. I will say that I was... And I have a lot of respect for the members of the squad. I think they're all mm-hmm. bright, young, be a huge potential, right? You, you and I are a little older, though, than they are. Right. And when I looked at the infrastructure bill, which mattered a lot to the country and mattered a lot to Joe Biden, the idea that that those six members in the end voted against it, I thought that was sort of stunning that they would not in the end come together for the party, for the president and for the country and, and be like, OK, it's not exactly what we wanted, but we're going to do this. How did you look at that when you saw Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and her colleagues, uh, Presley and others, we know who those on that list, when they voted no against the infrastructure bill back in October? November, Actually, I looked at it a little differently. Yeah. I don't believe that they would have killed the bill. And uh, now they did not tell me this. But I think that they voted no, knowing full well that we had the votes because we had enough Republican votes. I don't believe that they would have brought the bill down if the bill was dependent on their votes. So, Congresswoman, that is a uh, kind of savvy political insider thing to say. And, you know, (laughs) Americans don't understand that kind of thinking. But I have covered the body in which you work for a long time. So I do. And I think it might even be true. Uh, Let me ask you about one or two other things related to kind of news of day or news of of week kind of topical questions. One of them relates to the November jobs report, which came out Mm -hmm. just last week. And everything in that report was pretty great, right? The unemployment rate down to 4.2%, the lowest number of jobless claims in in decades. You got labor force participations pretty high. Everything was good about it, like I said, except for the one number that everybody pays the most attention to, which is the number of new jobs created, which uh, 
fell pretty far short of expectations of a lot of economic analysts and Wall Street and et cetera. So look, I mean, we know the economy is in a much better place than when Biden took office. And then, you know, you also look at the inflation situation, which is not great. And some of the other structural questions like the supply chain disruptions we've seen, those are not great. And, you know, the country is really not optimistic about the economy. So I guess my question is, are you optimistic about the economy? And if so, why? Well, uh, honestly, I'm a little nervous about the economy. Overall, I think we will be okay, but I know we're going through a rough patch. And the question is, how long will that last? I mean, inflation is definitely a concern. The price of gas is a concern. Uh, in your home state, it's uh, it's over $5 a gallon. You know, that that is definitely a big concern, especially because, you know, the cost of living is just so high in general. But, you know, I am will be fascinated to see what the economists say about how work is going to change. I mean, we went through, well, going on two years of just such a fundamental change in work with people now working, you know, remotely. And I think that it's going to lead to some structural changes in the workplace. Yeah, I'll tell you, if I lived in our home state and in our home city, I would be considering telework because, boy, the traffic out there pre-pandemic was pretty merciless. And it's it's not as actually as bad now, but I fear for the future. If I, I'd like I go camp out, you know, at the beach or something and just like work from my <laughs> laptop if it were me. The last news of day, news of week question I have for you is something I've talked about a fair amount over this week just because it's been on everybody's mind and particularly among my women friends, of whom I have many, including my wife, is the what SCOTUS did, uh, how SCOTUS sounded, I will say, considering the Mississippi law and the view about what's about to happen likely to Roe v. Wade, either scaled back or, and we can't predict, we don't know, but you know, you listen to those justices the other day, it seems like they got five votes, maybe six, to either scale it way back or repeal it altogether. Do you agree with that assessment on the basis of what you've heard, number one? And number two, what will that mean for women in America, for our politics, for, you know, on the broadest scale? It seems like if, if that happens, that this will be one of the things for which 2021 is remembered as one of the most historic things that happened this year, if this case does bring down Roe v. Wade. Well, I just think of the court decisions down the line, the idea that we would be moved backwards so much. You know, I mean, in 2021, making a decision like this and having a court that is going to just roll back so many progressive reforms that have happened over the years. So that's what's very scary to me. The other thing is that I really appreciated Uh, Justice Sotomayor really talking about it as this is something that is only going to apply to poor women. Women who are wealthy, women who have means will still be able to get the health care of their choice. This just singles out poor women. There are some people trying to make some lemonade out of these lemons who say this is the thing that will activate a part of the Democratic base and a part of the Democratic coalition that, frankly, and, and not unjustifiably, has taken abortion rights for granted because Roe right. has been law of the land for almost 50 years. And so the right's been animated by it in a way the left hasn't. In terms of at the grassroots level, do you think there's a chance that people now will be like, hey, we have to care about this, vote on this, organize on this? And in particular, I would say, do something that Democrats have been really bad at, which is focus on state level elections, focus on state legislatures, focus on governorships, because that's where a lot of this law might get made if Roe gets repealed. Well, you know what? I think it's that. But in addition, I think Democrats have failed in paying attention to the judiciary, period, across yes. the board, not just the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, you know what uh, McConnell was doing under Trump was really leading a structural change in our country. And in my opinion, preparing for minority rule, because all of the voting suppression tactics and strategies 
they've used, we've still been able to ultimately overcome. It's too bad that we have to work that hard. But if you control the judiciary, it really doesn't matter who gets elected because you can just sue and overturn a decision. So what I hope is it's a wake-up call to Democrats to say we have got to pay attention to the judiciary at every level. I think that I agree with that. And whenever I agree so wholeheartedly with someone who's on this show, it seems like a good opportunity to take a quick ad break. So we'll be back. We have (laughs) Kara Bass here, Congresswoman from the Fighting 37th of California. We'll be back after a couple of quick words to talk a little bit about our home state of California and our home city of Los Angeles on Hell and Water. You thought there couldn't be a year more disorienting, disruptive, and disturbing than 2020? Well, 2021 is right up there, pretty close. I mean, it's kind of hard to get your head around everything that happened, but here at The Recount, that's what we do. So, John Battelle, my co-founder, partner, and the CEO of the company and I are going to be hosting a live event on Thursday, December 9th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. Battelle and I will be unpacking the top stories in politics, tech, business, and culture from 2021, from the insurrection to vaccinations, the metaverse to crypto, the culture wars, and more. JB and I, recounting 2021. Register for this event at recount.co slash recounting 2021. That's recount.co slash recounting 2021 to watch Battelle and I deliberate, dissect, and discuss the tumultuous year that was. We are back with Karen Bass here on Hill and High Water, and I want to play a little bit of supporting material that accompanied Karen Bass's announcement she's running for mayor of Los Angeles. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I grew up in the Venice Fairfax neighborhood. It was a safe and diverse community. Our neighborhoods are facing a public health, safety, and humanitarian crisis, homelessness. At least 41,000 people sleep on the streets of LA every night. Throughout my career, I've stepped forward at times of crisis, and this time is no different. I'm running for mayor because I know that solving this crisis means addressing the causes. There are no simple answers, but we have the resources. Now we need the leadership to bring the city together. So that's, uh, you know, that's you're talking homelessness there. And, I, and I'm going to ask you about why you decided to do this and what you sure. want to do as mayor in a second. But first, I want to just focus on the first part of that. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Venice, Fairfax. You know, you are, you know, a, a girl, an L.A. girl, and I'm an L.A. <laughs> dude. And, and, and we've seen the city change a lot over yes. the course of our lives. Just talk to me a little bit about that, about what it's been like to be someone who, you know, you have an kind of incredible journey that you've been on. You know, you were a, a physician's assistant at one point and went to Keck at USC, the medical school there. I was just literally out there last week at Keck. <laughs> and, you know, you worked on the drug crisis and the crack epidemic in Los Angeles and were involved in some of the gang related stuff. You were at Florence and Normandy for the L.A. riots, um, mm-hmm. became the first African-American woman to ever be the speaker of a state legislative body, the California Assembly. That's an kind of a, even before you got to Congress. Um, this incredible California resume at the human level and at the elective level. So I just love for you to talk a little bit about what motivated you along the way and how your aspirations have twinned with the way that California has changed. Sure. Well, you know, I, I grew up in a particular time period when there was a lot of political activity. I went to a, a activist middle school and high school. So it's really been a part of my DNA from a very, very young age. And when I was working at USC Medical Center at General Hospital during the time of the 80s, 
when substance abuse was a real issue. I mean, we talk about opioids and fentanyl now, but remember then it was crack and it was just devastating the community. And at the same time, we had a problem with gang violence and homicides. And you remember in Los Angeles in the 80s and early 90s, we experienced a thousand homicides in one year. And for me, from the perch of a health provider and an activist, it just seemed like the only response that policymakers had was to pass laws to lock people up. I thought it was a health crisis. I thought it was an economic crisis. I thought it was a social crisis. So I walked away from that life and started a social justice organization to try to figure out how to prevent these problems from developing to begin with. And John, the irony is, is that 30 years later, I feel like we're at a similar crossroads in our city. The crisis this time is homelessness. Substance abuse is a huge element. Mental health is and a variety of other social problems. And I believe that some of the bad policies we passed in the 90s have contributed to the 40,000 people who sleep outside every night and two to three of them die a day. And so it's that crisis that is bringing me back home. It really isn't the dysfunction of D.C. I actually (laughs) enjoy the work here. And one of the toughest parts of the decisions to go home for me is walking away from the foreign policy side of the work. Although L.A. is an international city, so my experience in foreign affairs will definitely be applicable. But to go home at a time of crisis, to me, seemed the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, LA is one of the biggest countries in the world. And and, and, we, and, <laughs> right. and you know, I mean, we both know it's also one of the most diverse and cosmopolitan and demographically diverse, incredibly complicated city to govern, which we'll get to in a second. But mm-hmm. you sort of said, I, again, if I hear you right, and it was in the video too, there's no doubt there's a homelessness crisis in, in, in LA. Mm-hmm. And I go back all the time and, and I, my friends live there. I have friends on public assistance who have homeless encampments in their publicly subsidized housing units in Hollywood. I also have friends mm-hmm. who are middle class and, and upper middle class who who cite this problem. It's across the board. Everyone looks at it and sees it. And the right. polling shows people are concerned about it as a public safety issue. They're concerned about it as a public health issue. What I think I hear you saying is that literally that is the reason you're going back to do Absolutely. that. Or is there a broader crisis that you're pointing to? Well, I mean, the broader crisis is profound income inequality, but no, it is exactly what you just said. And ironically, 30 years ago, when I formed the social justice organization, we were working on homelessness then. And ironically, one of our strategies was to take over the motels. In one city council district in South LA, we had 54 motels and no tourists. So you know what the motels were used for. So to us, it was like, we see people sleeping on the streets. Why don't we take over the motels? And that's exactly the strategy that was used last year. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because Derek Garcetti is a friend of mine. And, you know, I watched Derek, you know, grapple with the challenges of this, which were huge. I mean, especially when you combine the homelessness problem that was growing before the pandemic and then Mm -hmm. was exacerbated by the pandemic. I would look at the guy and think, man, like (laughs) you can have this job, not a job I would want. Uh, Good luck with that. And I think, you know, I won't put words in his mouth. I I, I was going to make a a cheap joke about how much it'd be better to be in Calcutta, but it's not (laughs) that's that's not true. Just a joke um, because he's going to be the ambassador to India, folks. Um, Um, I guess I just wonder, like, you know, you go in saying, I'm going to try to tackle this problem, this problem. This is why I'm doing this. And it's it is a deeply rooted problem. It's got all kinds of causes that you just pointed to Mm -hmm. that are generations in the making. Right. Mm -hmm. Economic, racial disparities, income inequality, all that. I mean, I love the mission of it. 
for you. Like, I love the notion of a mayor mm-hmm. coming saying, this is a crisis. I'm going to take this on. That's what people are going to see you as doing. You've gotten all these endorsements and you're the obviously the odds on favorite to win. The field's pretty weak so far. Do you feel, though, like that's placing a lot? I mean, it's basically you're pushing all your chips into the table on one thing, because if you don't solve this problem, people are going to say, hey, right. Karen, you came back to solve this problem. And it's just as bad as it was. or You haven't put a dent in it. That's a pretty risky move. No, it is. It is. But you know what, though? There's people dying every day. 1,500 people died last year on the streets. And I've always been motivated by solving problems like that. I mean, it's been the core of what I've done. And like I said, I mean, 30 years ago, we were dealing with some of these issues, but nothing to the level now. And now the fact that this problem has spread all over the city and you can't avoid it because it was there before, but it has metastasized. And so the other reason, John, though, is that experiencing four years of the Trump administration and the divisiveness that has happened here, but also around the country, I could see that happening in L.A. also. And in the 90s, people were very, very angry. That's what led to them passing laws that actually, I believe, did not solve the problem, but hurt the problem and contributed to what we have today. I don't want to see that happen again. And there is an element in L.A. that is very angry. Compassion is gone. And to me, whether you are compassionate about it or not, you do want the problem to be solved. Just shoving it away from your neighborhood doesn't solve it. And it'll be right back in your neighborhood unless we actually get at the reasons why people are houseless to begin with. You know, there's a related thing to homelessness, which is crime. And yes. it's obviously a huge issue in big cities around the country. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about this, some of which are accurate and fair and some of which are demagogic. And we get both in our politics, unfortunately. But here in New York, you know, we have Eric Adams, who could be our mm-hmm. new mayor here, a former police officer who is an African-American, who has been hailed by some as kind of a different kind of model for in this moment of, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, this moment of supposed wokeness in the Democratic Party. <laughs> People look at Eric Adams and say, that's interesting. A guy who's kind of a tough on crime progressive who's going to try to govern New York. And he sort of says, you know, he's trying to position himself that way. And he's sort of seen that way. Do you look at that and say, as people come to you and talk to you about the crime problem in L.A.? And again, I just don't want to mischaracterize this. There are a lot of rich white people who complain about crime and never touches them. There are some suburban whites who it does touch, but there's also a lot of poor people. And the crime problem is a bigger problem in the poor community and the non-white community than anywhere else. So when you hear all of that and the mix and the jumble, and then you look at the way Adams has handled it, how do you kind of think about how you're going to talk about that and what you're going to do about it when you get there? Well, first of all, you know, you absolutely have to enforce the laws. And I am worried about crime in Los Angeles. But, you know, there is an element that's associated with homelessness, but there is also an increase in crime that has nothing to do with homelessness. You've seen the smash and grab robberies. We had a horrible shooting uh, a couple of days ago of one of the iconic members of, of Los Angeles Right. That would be uh, Jacqueline Avon, right? The the prominent philanthropist, wife of Clarence Avon, famous music producer, et cetera, et cetera. A terrible story. And all of that, again, leads people to be angry. It leads politicians to come up with very quick solutions. And I think a lot of times those harm folks. But my focus has been and as mayor would really be. And is that's focusing on the prevention of crime, because there are a lot of strategies and techniques that communities can use and they use all the time, but they're never really resourced 
It's kind of similar with homelessness, too. There are wonderful social service agencies that are doing God's work every day, getting people off the streets and into housing, but they're never really given the resources to function at scale. And so people feel often like nothing is being done. You have to suppress crime when it occurs, and you have to prevent crime. Politicians, however, and and I can talk about them because I'm one, (laughs) politicians don't invest in prevention because you can't really do a bumper sticker about what didn't happen. Totally. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the biggest problems in terms of short term, long term, visible, invisible, these all the the, the screwed up incentive structures in your business. And I respect politicians, Mm -hmm. but boy, (laughs) boy, do they go for short term invisible oftentimes rather than long term and invisible. I mean, you know, your your energy, optimism, enthusiasm about going and trying to tackle this task is, I think, inspiring. And I think part of why people are already gravitating towards the campaign. I won't even list all the endorsements because it would be embarrassing to you and me. But this is not the first new job that's been a little bit on your radar recently. I recall in the summer of 2020 <laughs> that you were vetted to be uh, Joe Biden's running mate. I, I've covered some presidential campaigns in my time. How did you enjoy that vetting process, that full body cavity search <laughs> that they that they do on that? Was that fun for you? You know, I mean, of course, the negative stuff wasn't, but it was such an honor. It yeah. really was. I mean, you know, it was an honor and it was also just completely surreal to think that I would even be under consideration. So that certainly helped when the negative stuff came out. But it was also not a surprise. I mean, I certainly knew how I was going to be characterized. Yeah, especially in today's politics, as tribal as they are. Right. Your fellow... African-American female California politician, Kamala Harris, is now the person who got that job. Yes. And she's, you know, you've read all the reporting. It's not like she's been having an easy time of it with right. the press or the insider perception of her performance. There's a broad view in Washington that it's not going that well for her. Simone Sanders just announced she was leaving. She lost her communications director. There's a sense that, like, it's rocky. And I've seen a lot of vice presidents go through rocky periods. So this is not in the new under the sun here. But I ask you, I don't know how close you are to her, but I, I'm curious how you think she's doing, how you think she's how do you think she's bearing up to the difficulties of this job? It's a very difficult job, just like being president is. But I'm curious what you think about all of that. How is she being perceived and how she's doing and how she's feeling about it? Well, I think that she's definitely holding up and projecting herself in a strong manner. But I have just been pretty angry. The attacks are relentless, just relentless. And I'm sure that she knew that that was going to happen, but it's like she doesn't even get a moment's break. For example, when she went to France, that was a really positive moment. And that was scrutinized. I think she bought some pots or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems like the media has gone negative. I mean, and especially the conservative media has just been absolutely ruthless. There's a line of argument among Democrats and allies of hers that says the White House is not doing enough to help her succeed. Do you agree with that? Well, you know, it would be hard for me to to assess, but I would like to see them project her more. I mean, because if you look at the issues that she's been assigned, you know, those are issues that, you know, whether they are winnable or not, it certainly cannot possibly be on her shoulders to take it across the finish line. Yeah, it's like, here, welcome to the vice presidency. Now go handle the border crisis. That's what we've won, Steve. Um, (laughs) Okay, it's time to take one more break. We'll come back and talk a little about the future and some some political stuff about your party on the last segment. I'm having such a great time (laughs) talking to Karen. I can talk about L.A. We can talk about L.A. all day long uh, here on Hell and Highwater. But first, let's take a break. Uh, We'll be back with Karen Bass momentarily.
And we are back with Karen Bass here on Hell and High Water, the congresswoman from the Fighting 37th District of California. It's great to hear that you're not leaving just out of pure disgust with Washington. Because no. a lot of people, a lot of people do. You know, a lot of people go up right. there for a little while and then like, boy, this place is so dysfunctional. I got to get out. But you're that's you know, not your view. No. And I do admit it took uh, a bit of convincing to get me to leave. Right. So <laughs> I also think, though, it is, is the case. Someone who's been a state level politician who's now been a federal level politician going back to be potentially mayor of a big city. That's a great like level of fruit because if you're going to be mayor of L.A., knowing how Washington works, knowing how, how Sacramento works isn't kind mm-hmm. of important thing. So you're, you bring a lot to that table. I want to play a, a one more clip here. Uh, your colleague, Jim Clyburn, right after the 2020 election, uh, was asked about defund the police as a slogan. Right. And, and it kind of touched on some broader things that I referred to earlier, the supposed wokeness problem, the Democratic Party. Let's listen to Clyburn uh, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk on the other side. You know, John Lewis and I uh, were co-founders uh, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, John and I sat on the House floor and talked about that defund the police slogan And both of us concluded that it had the possibilities of doing to the Black Lives Matter movement and current uh, movements across uh, the country uh, what Burn Baby Burn did to us back in 1960. We Mm. lost that movement over that slogan. So I spoke out against the sloganarian, and I feel very strongly we can't pick up these things just because it makes a good headline. It sometimes destroys Headway. You sound like Jesse Jackson, that headlines and headway thing. <laughs> so I, I I know you have criticized Defund the Police as a slogan. I've heard you say a terrible slogan. I've heard you say you said that app in the course of 2021. You were quoted on this topic. There's a larger set of issues here. There's been research about this, that even though Joe Biden was not for defunding the police, that mm-hmm. the slogan itself hurt him with certain constituencies, Hispanic voters in particular in 2020. We now have the off-year elections, and there was a lot of discussion after Virginia and what happened in Portland, what happened in Minnesota, what happened in other states, that defund the police, like it or not, became an emblem for the Democratic Party. And that was a, these are what the pundits say. And again, there's some data that supports it, that the party has a wokeness problem in perception, if not reality, and that that's a political problem. And I'm curious whether you agree with that, what you think about that analysis and how the party has to deal with it, if you agree with it, even in part. Oh, I do agree with it in part. But I also think that there's another problem here. I think that when we get attacked for things, we don't respond very well. Mm -hmm. And we allow the right to take it and run away with it. You know, for example, defund the police was never used by, I mean, maybe there's a handful of members of Congress, but it was never a part of a party platform that I recall. It was certainly never pushed in Congress. But once the right got a hold of it, I think we got on the defensive and never got off. I mean, it's the same thing. Last year, we went from a racial reckoning to now critical race theory, which has never been taught in in schools. But what I find our side doing is we adopt their language as well. So now we're talking about critical race theory instead of calling it out for, you know, for what it is, which is fiction. It's actually that they don't want U.S. history taught truthfully. Right. So in the New York Times, there's a story about a, a Democratic pollster named Brian Stryker, mm-hmm. who did not work for Terry McAuliffe, but when did some focus groups in Virginia to try to figure out why Terry lost. And he came back, despite the fact that President Biden carried that state by 10 points a year earlier, you know, and it wasn't just the governor's race, it was the lieutenant governor and the attorney general mm-hmm. and the Virginia State House, all of it, you know, House of Delegates. 
Stryker says his takeaway was people think we, the Democrats, are more focused on social issues than the economy. And the economy is the number one issue right now for black voters, for Latino voters, for women's voters, for everyone. The economy (laughs) matters more than everything. And Democrats are now perceived as not being mostly focused on that. Again, what do you make of that analysis? And I mean, do you agree with him, number one? And if it's true that Democrats who are mm-hmm. focused on the economy passing all these big bills, we're just talking about that. But then, then what's the problem with Democrats not yes. making that clear? If voters don't think you're focused on the economy, exactly. that, that's I, you can blame the media if you want. But I would put it back on Democrats who may not be doing a great job messaging. Right. And don't. No, well, I think that that's it, because we absolutely have been focused on the economy. I don't know where the economy would be now right. if it hadn't have been for the bills that the Democrats passed oftentimes without very, very little Republican support, if any at all. But what do we do? We're busy talking about the BIF and the BBB instead Mm. of talking (laughs) about what is actually in those bills, because both of those bills contribute to the economy and everything we did last year during COVID, all of the stimulus packages and all that were passed. It's why we're not in a depression. But yet... We never seem to be able to message, and I mean, I I say we, I obviously am part of it as well. And I will tell you, I can't remember a community meeting that I've ever had where people have not criticized us for that. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, every time I hear, I've used to hear about the Biff, I was always thinking it sounded like the Rush chairman at Sigma Nu, uh, you know, the fraternity that my assistant went to. But is that the Biden administration's fault? They lead no. on, like, no one, but no one commands the megaphone they command, right? They yeah. drive the message for the federal effort. These are Joe Biden's programs COVID relief, mm-hmm. the infrastructure bill, the mm-hmm. social spending bill. Do you think the White House has failed to some extent to drive this bigger thematic message? I know there's, there's plenty of blame to go around for what you're Right. Admitting is a problem. But right. does some of that rest at the doorstep of the White House? Oh, I'm sure some of it does. But, you know, I mean, the president, the vice president, the cabinet secretaries are out every day going around the country to different events, talking about what is in both the bills. And by the way, last year's success, I would put completely at the doorstep of Speaker Pelosi. Right. As I've often said, never doubt Speaker Pelosi. She tends to get things done, <laughs> which is why I think you're probably right that in some way, some way, shape or form, some kind of build back better or will get done. But I think of two big things of what I think of as the undone Biden agenda yes. that matter a lot to you. One of them is police reform, something that mm-hmm. you took the lead on mm-hmm. in the wake of so much. You could make a long mm-hmm. list. And now we've had these two trials, the Rittenhouse trial and then the Ahmad Arbery trial, one of which ended certainly with the correct outcome, the other of which is debatable on the law, but certainly not on the morals of it, I would say. Um, It seems like a big problem that this didn't get done. It's something you guys had a good bill. You had a lot of momentum at the first half of the year, and then it just went away. So tell me about your frustration, which I know is you're frustrated because you've said you're frustrated many times. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Tell me about that and what can be done. Is there any chance in an election year, Congresswoman, that we're going to have police reform? I don't think so. I mean, maybe, you know, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act had a lot of different provisions in it. I could see a scenario where some of those provisions make it through. But, you know, of course, the question was in the Senate. And I think in part, it was just the structure and the culture of the Senate to take so long to do Mm. anything. And my concern was it was completely predictable that the momentum would die at some point. We needed to pass that bill when hundreds of thousands of people were on the street. 
not when the issue had died down. And then, of course, crime cycles up and crime cycles down. So it was not shocking that there wouldn't have been an uptick in crime. But I, I will tell you that there is an issue that is more important than police reform and I think is the most important issue, and that's voting rights. It's an existential issue because, you know what? what's interesting is that because I work in the foreign policy area as well, what we're doing in this country, we actually sanction other countries for, and we have language for it. It's called yes. a closing of democratic space. Yes. So all of the gerrymandering, the laws that are being passed in Georgia to essentially allow the overturning of an election yes. is an existential issue. That's where I think I want to see the White House say nonstop. This is what we're going to focus on. Well, thank you. Thank you for this, because I sometimes feel like I'm howling into the abyss about this or banging a drum slowly or a broken record, whatever the bad metaphor is for this. The president of the United States, I agree with you about this, unsurprisingly. The president of the United States said this is the new Jim Crow. Went to Philadelphia mm -hmm. back in the first half of the year. He went and gave a speech. It was a good speech. He said, New Jim Crow, said existential crisis of democracy. He said it in the inaugural that we had a crisis of democracy in the wake of 1-6. He said all that stuff, right? And then he didn't get another speech about it. Hasn't talked about it in a public forum that I know of other than that one speech. And people say to me, well, Republicans are recalcitrant and the filibuster's tough. And I say, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've seen presidents when they wanted to get something really done that they thought was super important, what they did. Barack Obama on the Affordable Care Act talked about it every day for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. You know, when Bill Clinton tried to pass mm -hmm. his economic plan in 1993, talked about it every day for a year. Mm -hmm. When Donald Trump wanted to cut taxes, talked about it every day for months and months and months. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden hasn't talked about this every day, not even close to every day. He talked about it once. And I, I don't understand how a president who says it's the new Jim Crow it's existential, it's voter suppression, it's voter nullification, it's voter subversion. The future of our democracy is on the line. I'm gonna talk about it once in a calendar year. How do you, I just explain that to me. You must be profoundly disappointed with the president for not having done more on this. Well, I am profoundly disappointed. I think that we need to pull out all stops. There's just no issue more important than this. I don't know all that he should be doing, but I do think by any means necessary, changing the rules of the Senate, changing the parliamentarian, dealing with the filibuster, if we don't have some protection for voting. See, that's where we come from, such a privileged state. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, you know, we have totally. ballots now are going to be mailed to everybody in every election. And so we don't have to worry about it. But I watch my colleagues from other states where they're basically concerned as to whether or not just their, not their individual seats, <laughs> but that the issues that they work on, the people that they represent right. will just be eliminated in terms of having representation. And, you know, there's two separate problems here, right? One problem is we, we all, I don't know, we all, some of us, we look at what Donald Trump has done with uh, promoting the big lie, the tens of millions of Americans who don't believe the 2020 election was legitimate, even though there's no evidence whatsoever that it was stolen. And the things that have happened at the state level now, you know, where I mean, I'm I, I as much as I worry about voter suppression, the stuff that happens on the backside, the who gets to count the votes, what votes get counted, who's right. in the counting rooms, you know, exactly. the, the nullification subversion yes. issues matter, strike me as more disconcerting. And Trump and his people have been going to these battleground states and trying to make sure that the people who are doing 
the counting this time and deciding are going to be allies of the president's to, to give him a leg up. That's one problem. The other problem is this erosion in the confidence we have in the system. Yes. Until you and I grew up at a time when no one the day after an election said that was a stolen election. No, yeah, exactly. and, now, and now millions exactly. of people say it on the left and the right. And I think That's after right. 2022, we're going to hear a lot of progressives who are going to say <laughs> if Republicans win, that it was a stolen election. They may be right, but it's just is a. Chris Krebs said to me the other day it was an anti-democratic death spiral that we're heading into. And that's what freaks me out. And something that you see overseas all the time, time, you know, and the the other thing is that we know in advance that that's Putin's playbook is to rock people's confidence in the basic process. So you are always questioning and are never confident. I don't know what more the president could be doing or the administration could be doing. Maybe they're doing a lot of things behind the scenes. But I think that the structure of the Senate is basically broken. It's not the Senate from 20, 30 years ago. This is a new animal because the Republican Party is fundamentally broken. Well, I'd say, Karen Bash, you, there, there are two things a White House can do, one of which is something is public campaigns and the other is things in private. We know mm-hmm. they've been doing public campaigns, mm-hmm. and I think you might know if there were private campaigns going mm-hmm. on. So I think if you don't know about it, it's pretty unlikely it's happening <laughs> behind the scenes. I'm not sure who else would know if it wasn't you. It brings me to one to a quite to put a fine point on this. And I, again, it would be an uphill struggle. A lot of big things would have to happen. But if it's really existential, you should t- treat it as existential. And a related issue is this one six committee, right? And what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And again, because I think it's closely conjoined to this question of faith in our democracy and people who are actively trying to knock it down. I think it's super important for our history, for accountability, for a lot of things, for us to get to the bottom of what happened on one six and to make right. sure we know what happened and to be able to try to take some steps on the basis of that to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. Do you think that the committees, you know, facing intransigence, Steve Bannon, the president's assertions of his executive privilege, the court cases, they know how to do this. They know how to run out the clock, right? Do you worry that that they're going too slow? I know they're working hard. I'm not trying to say that the 1-6 mm-hmm. committee is not trying to get a lot done, but is it the case that they're just moving too slow and that there's a chance that we get to November of next year and, hey, sorry, man, time's run out and we don't have the answers we need? You know, I'm not sure they could move any faster I do hope that the DOJ moves aggressively because I think that if you don't make examples of some of them, if they can just stay out the whole time and just delay and delay, you know, no one is locked up. uh, I think that is a problem. The other thing that might be helpful, too, is more of a public side. So we're hearing bits and pieces of what they're learning. But it is so, so, so important for the public to really understand the depths that they went through, yes. how close we came. We came very close. And, you know, the one thing I, I think, you know, you can't defy congressional subpoenas. If, if we're ever going to have right. Congress be an exactly. investigative body, you can't. It's right. not a partisan thing. You know, you can't defy congressional subpoenas and not face consequences if we're going to ever or else or else the House's investigative role is going to be severely undermined, I think, for the future. So I saw Liz Cheney said there are going to be weeks of public hearings in the 1-6 committee next year. That's and, great. You know, we'll see how they go. I do think it's important, right? I mean, yes. I, to me, that's encouraging on some level. And I would like to campaign to have them put them on in prime time on broadcast television mm-hmm. and you know, to highlight them. I mean, again, how important do you think the work of this committee is? Oh, I think it is so historic. I was talking to some of my colleagues the other day. I mean, just think about this in comparison to Watergate. Yeah. <laughs> Watergate just seemed so minor and it was so narrow. I think what we're learning here is that this was 
far beyond, but it also gets to the question of the Republican Party. What yes. is the future of the Republican Party? Will this element actually continue to control it? Will there be an upheaval internally or will there be a new party? One thing I'm convinced of, Liz Cheney will play a prominent role. Yeah. In your body, in the, the lower chamber, so to speak, the larger chamber, the people's chamber, you know, you've got a bunch of nuts on the Republican side mm -hmm. who become the face of the party. The Marjorie Taylor Greens, Lauren Boebert, the Paul Gosars who like to put out videos decapitating members of Congress. And everyone says, oh, it's not a big deal. Who cares? <laughs> you know, and there are, it's the Trumpification mm -hmm. of the Republican Party. Are you surprised that Donald Trump, and I know this sounds dumb, people, some people say to me, God, it's obvious, but you know, he's no longer president. He doesn't have a platform on Twitter or Facebook. He's not an active participant in our politics really in any way. Are you surprised a year later that the party is so Trumpy and that he continues to have such a large role? Uh, yes, I was. I mean, I did think that when the election was over that we would be able to turn a page. I did. Although on the other hand, I also just always described it as a cult too. And it is functioning like a cult. And so when you have some of the members in the House that we do, and I think Marjorie said she feels she represents the base. Mm. I'm sure she represents a base. I'm certainly <laughs> hoping that she doesn't represent the entire base of the Republican Party. Yeah. Oh, boy. If, if she represents the base, boy, I, I'm going to stay off the baseline. I'm going <laughs> to stay out way beyond the 3.1. Exactly. My last question for you. You've been so great to take the time today, and it's been such a delight. But I'm going to ask you a very you. serious question. I'd like to have an endorsement of my view. Uh, about this. I mean, if you can give it to me, we'll make a public campaign of it. I always think the talk of secession, you know, when the Texans talk about it, mm -hmm. it's like it's absurd, right? But you agree Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee in 2024, right? Yes. At this point, I do. do you think he's the favorite to be if he runs to be he's the favorite oh, to win? Oh, oh, I do. I right. think it's a question of his legal entanglement. Right. And if he's free to run and if he becomes the nominee, I mean, would we agree that he's like at least a 50-50 chance, close, you know, he could win. He could be the next president, right? Considering voter suppression, yes. Okay, so here's what I want you to endorse. I'd like you to endorse that if Donald Trump is president in 2024, gets elected president in 2024, and takes office in January of 2025, you as mayor of Los Angeles will secede from the union so we can create a safe haven <laughs> for all of us who want to live in a reality-based, fact-based democratic republic. How about that? You got it. You okay, good. It. All right. That's, I, my, 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 my work here is done. This has been a very successful episode of Hell and High Water. The, the uh, Republic I, of Los Angeles. I'm, 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 we're down. We're down for it. I'll run the janitorial services and you can run what will then be a national government. Karen oh, Bass, thank you, you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being both so clear-eyed and still leaving me not feeling totally depressed, which some guests <laughs> do when they're clear-eyed. I just feel like I want to kill myself at the end of these shows. But you are clear-eyed and resolute, but also still brimming with hope. And that's a good way to be. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And I hope to come back. Hell on High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Congresswoman Karen Bass for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell. That man, he's our executive producer. 